Would you open scripture this morning to the book of James, chapter 2? Book of James, chapter 2. We are continuing our sermon series this morning in our journey through this wonderful epistle, a very practical epistle, very challenging epistle, very confrontational epistle, book of James. If you did not bring your Bibles with you this morning, uh, we encourage you to grab a Bible provided in the chair in front of you, black cover, uh, the Pew Bible. You may find this passage in those Bibles on page number 1011, 1011. It is a great joy to be ushered into the presence of God and, and prepare ourselves for the hearing of God's Word uh, by having partaking of the Lord's Supper, recognizing that we are here having fellowship with God, engaging with God, being confident of entering His presence only because of what we have celebrated just a few moments earlier. Praise be to God for His grace. And now, friends, let's hear from the Lord. Let's hear His Word for our hearts. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and a fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for your grace. Of which, in particular, we appreciate and are grateful the grace that you have revealed your word towards us. Oh, Lord, would you speak to our hearts this morning through the proclamation of your word? We pray this in the name of Christ, for his glory and honor, and through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit who is, who is among us. We pray this. Amen. Amen. 
Well, friends, notice how James describes the Christian life in verse 1 as holding to the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, if you remember last week, if you're not with us last week, and this is your first time with us, we're so glad you're with us. I want to remind you of what we have covered in chapter 1. In the last few verses of chapter 1, James spoke about the Christian life by using the category of religion. And he spoke about what pure and undefiled religion is. He described this Christian life as, as actions. Yes, the Christian life involves actions. But someone may think that they are religious by simply the actions of what they do. And James says that if you just, if you think you are religious, if you think you have it, but there's no change in your life, and your life doesn't show it, your religion is worthless. There is a way, there's a possibility that some people think of themselves as being Christian, as being fine, as being okay spiritually, as being religious, and yet no transformation, no change of heart, no change of action appears. For such people, such religion is worthless. At the end of chapter 1, James gave three tests of genuine religion. Last week, we looked at these three marks or three tests of genuine religion. James spoke about a controlled tongue, a compassionate heart for the needy, and a pursuit of purity by abstaining from what is worldly. Today, in chapter 2, as we look at as, at the beginning of chapter 2, James elaborates on those marks and is giving an illustration, giving, giving us a specific test. What does, it mean for, what does it mean for a Christian not to be worldly, to abstain from, from the impurities of, of the world? There are many things in Scripture that we can look at. Today, James gives us one example. It means not living with the same value systems, not looking at life the same way as the world looks at our lives. One of the tests of worldliness is the test of partiality. The world is used to treating people based on who they are or what they have. The world makes accommodations to treat people differently based on their background, based on their status. We don't treat people the same way. Now, in the West, uh, especially in countries where Christianity has had, uh, for the last few centuries, a greater influence, civilization has, has tried to grow in, in, in understanding the worth and the dignity of every human being, regardless of, of what social status they have in society. But go to other places where, where that influence has not been as penetrating, you see that people are treated differently merely by what they have, who they are, what background they bring to, with themselves. And today, James wants to challenge us and challenge a church that the church should be one place where such different treatment does not happen, 
where partiality does not happen. James is concerned that those who hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ do not hold this faith with partiality. So let's look this morning at the test of partiality. What is partiality? What is partiality or favoritism? It is treating people in different ways according to their outward appearance, according to their material advantages, or according to their backgrounds. It is considering someone important and another as negligible based on what we see in them or about them or what they have. Now, let me clarify um, that we don't misunderstand this teaching against partiality. James is not saying that we should not honor certain people that deserve to be honored. Um, we see in Scripture a number of places where Scripture encourages us to honor certain people. First of all, we should, we should honor everyone. But then on top of that, in 1 Peter, we see the instruction that we should honor, that Christians were to honor the emperor, those who had official positions in society whom God has put there to, to control and to, to, to be leaders of society. We should have a respect and honor towards them. In the life of the church, we are given instructions that we should honor, well, we should honor all people, all of us, one another, but there's also instructions about honoring certain people uh, in, a, in a special way. For instance, in the book of 1 Timothy, we have instructions about how the church should live, how members of the church should live with one another and together in community, in the community of the church. We are told that young Christians should honor older Christians. We are told that even Timothy, as a young preacher, if he had to encourage or admonish an older saint, he should do it with gentleness as if he was doing it towards his parents. We should honor those who are old in the faith. This morning, um, we have a, a member in our, in our church family who actually this past weekend has turned 80, Gloria Hoover. And her, her, her boys are with her here. And they brought some flowers to recognize Gloria. And uh, we, appreciate, we appreciate a life of 80 years. And Gloria, how long have you been a member of this church? 42 years. Praise God. We are grateful to God for you and, and for many others. I'm thinking of Paul Beeman, Marilyn Beeman, the Meachams, uh, the Van Rysucks have been here for, for several decades. The Robinsons have been here for several decades. We, we want to honor and, and thank God for the faithfulness of these brothers and sisters. There's nothing wrong with that. If anything, we're encouraged to honor uh, those who are older in the faith. Young Christians, young families, look towards the older saints. And yes, some of them might become more frail and unable to be as engaged and as able to be with us on a regular basis as once they used to be. Look towards them and, and approach them and consider them and treat them as your parents. Also, Scripture in, in 1 Timothy talks about honoring uh, those who are spiritual leaders in the congregation, the elders. And there's other categories of people that we should honor so, honoring people is not wrong. The problem that James addresses is when we honor people based on their wealth or based on what they look like on the outside. How did this favoritism show in James's day? Uh, James gives an illustration or a scenario of how uh, churches, the churches to whom he writes, received guests. Now, 
I don't know how many of you this morning um, are serving uh, in our greeter ministry. Uh, we love you. We appreciate you. We, we need you. We want you to be serving with joyfulness. But can you imagine uh, if you were a believer in the early church, to the, in one of the churches to whom James is writing, and uh, you see a, a man uh, walking in the, in the church, and he has uh, bright-looking clothing, uh, bright, shiny clothing. And in those days, that was a sign of, of wealth. That was a sign of affluence. And also a, a golden ring. And, and that, again, was a sign of, of being some, some sort of important person in society. You see such a guest coming in. We, you don't know if he's a believer or not. He might be a non-believer. He might be a believer. We don't know. You see him and you, you say, you, you need to sit here at front in this good seat. And then right behind him, there's another person walking in. Shabby clothing, dirty clothing. He walks in that way not because he's not careful with himself or because he's just, uh, he doesn't know how to take care of himself. He's that way because he has no other pair of clothing. He probably has the, only one pair. It's the same pair in which he worked the whole week. He probably even slept in the same pair of clothing. So he stinks as well. He comes in and, and you're looking to find him a seat and you don't give him the good seat. You give him a, a seat further away. Over there. Over there in the back. By the way, you know, being for, further away was not a good sign in ancient times. F stay there. Hint to those who like, like to stay over there. Come forward. Can you imagine? That, that was just a joke. I hope you take it as a joke. Sometimes I've been given the critique that I say jokes in a way that don't come across as jokes. But can you imagine that you make a differentiation and, and merely the way you seat people in their seats was an act of showing honor or dishonor? And we don't have that problem today. We don't, we don't show honor these days by exactly where we put people and how people sit in the church. But there's different ways we can show honor or dishonor today. And by the way, today when we have a society in which uh, there's a, a good portion of our society is a middle class, unlike the first century where you were either poor or rich. Today, when we have a, a different way of, that our society works, we may not look at clothing as the only uh, way of differentiating if someone is well-off or not. There are other things we might look at to differ differentiate between people. We might look at their, at their cars, what cars they drive in. We might look at uh, their education. We might look at what kind of job they have, what kind of career they have, and distinguish between people on other, on other criteria. But it doesn't matter the details. The, the problem that James addresses is that they are differentiating between people based on outward appearance. When, when acting in this way, what are they doing? James says, listen, it's not just a matter that you're putting one person in a good seat, another person in a bad seat. That's not the problem. The problem is what that represents. And look at verse 4, what exactly their actions represented. Verse 4, James says, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Huh. James calls out their actions of, of seating people differently as being motivated by evil thoughts because they were evaluating people based on their outward appearance. 
To evaluate someone based on outward appearance is rooted in evil thinking. This is a sin of favoritism. Do we struggle with this tendency today? One example I came across in a Christian institution of higher education, a Christian school treating some students differently because their parents were big donors. So when there was an incident of a disciplinary action towards a student whose family was a big donor, the leadership of the school did not act consistently, fearing that they would lose that donor's contribution. Are there ways people today differentiate and, and, and give different treatments to different people based on, on wealth? Is it possible that sometimes in church we might be fearful of not offending uh, someone who might be a, a generous giver? By the way, that's one of the reasons why we try not to promote and make known who gives what in the congregation. It's a matter of personal, to you and the Lord, but we don't want to make that a public knowledge so that we don't think of people differently based on what they're able to give. Now, why is partiality wrong? Let's look at the second point. We looked at what partiality is. Let's look at what, why is partiality wrong. Well, first of all, the first reason, the first sub-point of the second point, in your notes, if you like taking notes, is that partiality is wrong because it's the opposite of God's character. It's the opposite of God's character. We know that God has many attributes in the Bible. Uh, we know from the Bible that He has many attributes. He's holy. He's loving. He's just. He's merciful. But did you know that one of the attributes of God in the Bible is that He is impartial? Deuteronomy, I'm going to read a few verses. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. Here's what we read. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. You love that, right? And then, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. When Peter, in the book of Acts, is invited to Cornelius' house and hears about how an angel came to, the, to, the, to appear to Cornelius and gave him instructions to send for Peter and call him to come to his house because Peter has a message to tell Cornelius in his household and Peter finds out, hears this report, and he, he doesn't know what to say. The first thing he starts saying as he begins speaking about God, Peter says in Acts 10, 34, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. The first truth that Peter brings to Cornelius in declaring to him the gospel is a truth that God shows no partiality. And why did he say that? Because Peter understood that the gospel from this point forward is to be preached not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. The first attribute of God mentioned in the evangelism of the Gentile world is that God shows no partiality. Other places in Scripture tells us that God shows no partiality in executing His judgment. Romans chapter 2, when discussing the righteous judgment of God, Paul says the following in verses 6 through 8, he, namely God, will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, 
and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And then in verse 11, Paul says, for God shows no partiality. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Peter says, For since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially, did you hear that? If you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. In the case of James, we see this character of God in verse 5. Look at James 2, 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? In other words, when we consider the doctrine of divine election, whom has God chosen? He could have chosen just the, the smartest people of planet Earth and just elected them. He could have chosen just the richest people of, of planet Earth and just elected them. But he didn't. He has chosen the poor, the insignificant, those who have no influence in society. For it's even thinking about the, the, the 12 disciples that Jesus has chosen. Who did he choose to be the 12 around him? It wasn't people who were religious leaders or influencers in, in their day. Friends, aren't you glad that God did not choose people based on their wealth or education or background or status in life? The Apostle Paul says that this was indeed the case with most of the people, majority of the people in the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 1, 26, uh, Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Oh, friends, this is the character of God, that He is an impartial God who looks not at the outward appearance, not at what we have, and He chooses graciously mercifully, not according to who we are or what we have. By the way, do you remember the story when God chose to replace King Saul in the Old Testament? And God spoke to Samuel to go to the house of Jesse and choose another king that God will choose for himself over his people. So Samuel goes to the house of Jesse. Jesse has a number of sons, and he calls him out. He says, the Lord has sent me to anoint one of your sons to be the next king. And Jesse brings his oldest and he's not the one. He brings his second oldest. He's not the one. He brings them all until the end, and there, there's no one. And, and, and Samuel says, is this all? And Jesse says, well, there's, there's one other little kid. He's so young. He's, he's out in the field. Jesse did not even bring him to, be, to, be, to, be, to have a chance in the tryout, if you will. And God gave Samuel a great lesson when he looked at the first one. God told Samuel a great principle. He said, do not look on his appearance or on the height 
of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. This is the character of God. This is the way he works. Jesus also in his ministry was noticed uh, for his impartiality. At one point, some of the disciples uh, that, that the Pharisees have sent to him said to, to Jesus, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and that you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. The way Jesus conducted his ministry was in such a way that he was not swayed by appearances. Oh, friends, it's not simply that God's character, his attributes, and the ministry of Jesus, his work is characterized by this impartiality, but God makes it clear over and over again in the Scriptures that he wants his people not to show partiality. It started in the book of Le Leviticus, chapter 19, verses 15 and on. God said, you shall not be partial. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Proverbs 28, 21, to show partiality is not good, but for a piece of bread a man will do wrong. Malachi, chapter 2, the end of, of the Old Testament God was angry with His people for a number of sins. And one of the sins that God brings out and confronts them with is, God says, I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. They were teaching people differently based on who they were. If, he's, if a person has means... And a good background, I'm not going to teach them all, the, all especially all the, the, the things they have to do or, or, or keep from doing. I'm just going to keep them simple for them so we can keep them happy, so we can give to the church. We're not going to talk to them about their sins. We're not going to talk to them about their disobedience because we're afraid they might go to the church next door, and they probably will. So let's not address it that strongly with them. But to someone who's not a big donor or not an important person, not an influential person, we can bring it all because we lose nothing if they, if they leave. Friends, the people of Israel were partial in the way they instructed God's people. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 to 20. In disciplining an elder, yes, church, if elders sin visibly and do not repent, they are to be Pub disciplined publicly in disciplining an elder. Paul says to Timothy, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Elders and pastors in leading the church should do nothing from partiality. So in James 1, it is no wonder that James brings out his big guns and says, Church, believers, do nothing as you're holding to the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do nothing with partiality. So why is partiality wrong? 
because it is the opposite of God's character. God is not partial, and we don't represent Him well when we show partiality. Actually, when we do show partiality, we put on display not the rule of God, not the character of God, but the rule and character of this world. This world shows partiality. When we gather as a people here, the one place where we should not show the worldliness, the value system of the world is a church. And one way we, we should not do that is by not showing partiality. Second reason why, we sh why partiality is wrong is because partiality makes you a transgressor of the whole law. By the way, I'm going to mention the, last, the, the next few points very briefly. I'm going to come back to these points uh, next time I preach in two weeks. Uh, Lord willing, because this is so, such a rich passage, I don't have time to work through it all in one, uh, in one sermon. But the second reason, I'm just going to mention it, the second reason is partiality makes you a transgressor of the whole law. Look at verses 8 and 9. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing a sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. In other words... Showing partiality makes you, makes me, makes any of us who do it a transgressor of the law. Now, let me say this. It doesn't matter, according to James, it doesn't matter how many other rules and how many other laws you obey, how well you obey other rules of God's commandments. If you break this one, you break them all. If you obey... 99% of, of God's rules, of God's laws, but you break one. And in this case, this one. You are a transgressor of the law. We'll talk about that next time more, about, about this principle. But think of it like this. If, if the law of God was like a fence, it doesn't matter where you cross the fence. What matters is whether or not you cross it illegally. It doesn't matter which one you hold. If you cross one, even this one, you are a transgressor of the law. Partiality makes us transgressors of the law of God, of the whole law. Friends, just one sin is able to bring death. Just one sin is able to bring death. Just one sin is able to convict us of being lawbreakers of the entire law. You want to say, well, that's not fair. Well, remember the Garden of Eden? Remember the Garden. Just one disobedience was enough to bring the whole human race under the judgment of God. To bring the whole human race under the corruption, the slavery to corruption and death. This one disobedience was enough to sentence us all to death. So let not, let's not treat one sin, even the sin of partiality, lightly. It doesn't matter how well we love others as our neighbors, as ourselves. If we love others with partiality, if we love only those whom we like to love, What difference are we, how are we living differently than the Gentiles? So another reason why partiality is wrong, third reason, the third sub point is partiality will be judged on the final day of judgment. 
Look at verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. James here brings home the reminder that Christians will stand before the judgment seat of God and should speak in such a way and should act in such a way that they will be ready to face the judgment of God. I love how Doug Moo, how he describes this passage and how he explains it. God's gracious acceptance of us does not end our obligation to obey Him. Let me say that again. I think it's so beautifully stated. God's gracious acceptance of us does not end our obligation to obey Him. It sets it on a new footing. No longer is God's law a threatening, confining burden, for the will of God now confronts us as a law of liberty, an obligation we discharge in the joyful knowledge that God has both liberated us from the penalty of sin and given us in His Spirit the power to obey His will. Praise God for His law of liberty. For those who are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, through repentance of their sin, for those who are saved by God's mercy in Jesus, for them the law of God becomes a law of liberty, which we are called to obey joyfully, which we are enabled to obey by God's Spirit. It's not always easy. I get it. It's difficult. Mortifying ourselves, denying our own self, denying our selfish and sinful inclinations of the heart is a battle that's hard to carry. But in the power of the Spirit, living out the law of God is living out the path of liberty, the path of freedom, God's freedom. Oh, friend, I hope you realize that we are not saved in order to be excused by God's law or from God's law. We are not saved in order to be excused from the law of God. We are saved so we may live out the law of God. That's a big difference. Those who are Christians should not say, well, now it doesn't matter because I'm saved. Oh, friends, it does matter. I love what 1 John 3, 24 says, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. How do we know that, we, that God is inside of us? How do we know that God is inside of us? How do you know that God is inside of you? Is there an inner desire inside of you to keep God's commands? So speak and so live that you get ready to be judged by the law of liberty. So how? So we looked at why it's wrong, why partiality is wrong. We look at three reasons. How do we correct the sin of partiality? How do we correct the sin of partiality? Two brief points, both at the beginning of our passage and at the end of our passage. Notice in verse 1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Why is James describing Jesus as a Lord of glory at this point? Why does that matter? He could have just saved a few words and not say that. Just say, just hold on to, to the faith in, in our Lord Jesus Christ without partiality. But he said something else about Jesus. He described him as the Lord of glory. Why? 
Why is that important to be reminded of the glory of the Lord? Because what these believers, in, in showing partiality, they were lured by the human glory. They were lured by the outward appearances of human fame, of human importance, of human influence. And James reminds them that the Lord in whom they have put their faith and trust in is the Lord of glory. Oh, friends, it is when we realize the glory of God that all and everything else around us perishes in its importance, diminishes in its value. And even in the way we look at people, or the way we look at people who are, who are glorious in the eyes of this world, it is the glory of God. When we are, or when we are reminded of that glory, it is through that glory that we are enabled to actually realize that people, even though they are glorious according to the standards of this world, apart from Christ, they are pitiful and wretched. It is the glory of God that enables us to see believers who might be poor, dirt poor, having nothing, and yet we can consider them rich in faith, valuable brothers and sisters who contribute to our faith and we contribute to theirs, who, who, with whom we cherish, one, we cherish one another and live close to one another. Oh, friends, it is the glory of the Lord that enables us to see one another adequately, appropriately. I love the lyrics of a song we sometimes sing here. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full into his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You will start looking at people differently when your eyes are taken with the glory of God. The second remedy that we see in this passage is in verse 13. Verse 13 is an interesting verse. Many commentators wonder what is it doing here. It's not connecting with, with what has just happened. Uh, I think it's big time connected with just happened, and here's why. Here's a verse, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Whose mercy and whose judgment is James speaking about here? In the first sentence, he's speaking about the mercy and judgment of God. When we, God's people, don't show mercy to those around us, if we have seen the mercy of God and experienced the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, and we fail to show mercy to those around us, we are like that servant in the parable of, of a master with servants, whom the master has forgiven a great debt to one of his servants. And then the, that servant went and saw one of his colleagues who owed him a very small debt in comparison with his debt and chose not to forgive his co-laborer. And when the master heard that this servant, whom, whom was forgiven a huge debt, chose not to forgive his own uh, colleague's small debt, the master took away the mercy and judged him and, and, and judged him without mercy. In other words, if we, God's people, the point is, if we, God's people, who have received mercy, have experienced it, we don't show mercy to those around us, then we will face the judgment of God without mercy. But who's the mercy? Triumphs, mercy triumphs over judgment. Whose mercy is, is the second sentence referring to? It's not God's mercy, nor God's judgment. 
It's referring to our mercy and our judgment. Remember the diagnosis in verse 4 of how James uh, diagnosed these believers who were making favoritisms and impartiality? They said, you become judges with evil thoughts. Your act of partiality, you are judging with evil motivations. So what overcomes that judgment? Mercy. Mercy. When we understand God's mercy, we are called to show God's mercy to one another. And when we are committed to show that mercy and to live in light of that mercy, that will heal us of the danger of falling in the practice of partiality. Oh, friends, realize that when we seek to show mercy, especially to those who are poor, especially to those who look unimportant, friends, we are protecting ourselves of the danger of falling into partiality. Christians in America have been guilty in a number of ways, historically, of the danger and practice of partiality. Several decades ago, even the church has succumbed to the sin of racism. We have fallen big time in that. By God's grace, the Southern Baptist Convention has publicly repented of the sin. Now, just because they have done it publicly doesn't mean that we can't still fall into it practically in all kinds of ways these days. Friends, we are called to fight against the sin of racism, of treating people different based on their outward appearance. We're called to fight against that. And there's many other subtle ways. That, that's, just, that's a big one. There's other subtle ways in which we can fall in, in, in the sin of showing partiality. I heard a pastor say once that if a banker joined the church, he would sure put him in, on the finance team. Well, if, if he's a spiritual man and full of the Holy Spirit, absolutely. But just because someone might have an experience in banking does not put him, make him adequate to to handle the finances of the church. We can promote someone for a position of leadership simply because of their great leaders, uh, leadership experience in the workplace, because of their great influence in, in society or, or in our own congregation. How do we respond to the opportunities to show mercy and kindness and love towards one another without regard for who they are? Friends, the church is a gathering of people where the rule of God is put on display. And our God is impartial. And if we are going to represent this God well, if we're going to represent His kingdom adequately and faithfully, we must be a people that are committed to keep away partiality. Fight against it. Be aware of the subtle ways in which it can crawl upon us. And when we might fall against in it, we might repent of it and ask God to help us act in a merciful way to all people and, and to act in a way that shows that we are more consumed with the glory of God than with our outward appearance. Now, this application might have a subtle point and a subtle, subtle uh, thought. I want to encourage you. Friends, it's easy for us, even when we gather together, the first thing we say about one another, oh, you're dressed so nicely. Oh, look at you. You know, you know, we make comments. It's a way to encourage one another. 
Friends, I want to give you this challenge. You're, it's okay for you to, to speak kindly about how someone else looks if you speak the same amount about how glorious God is in our midst. You have my permission to, to do it. I'm not saying don't, don't acknowledge when someone looks nice. But if we are more consumed with our outward appearance, that when, especially when we gather, than with the glory of God among us, we might be, ha- we might be the, having the soil that can easily produce a crop of partiality based on outward appearance because we just like looking at outward appearances. Let's be cautious. Let's be cautious that we are more consumed with the glory of the Lord among us than how we look when, when we gather. May God make us a people that reflect the character of God truly and truthfully. He is a God who is impartial, and so should we be. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise your name for reminding us, your people, of what you are like. Lord, we confess that oftentimes we are not like you. We fail to represent you well, even in those attributes in which you desire for us to imitate and to reflect. Lord, help us. Cleanse us. If we have fallen in various subtle ways of showing partiality, would you forgive us? And Lord, cause in us a, a fear of living with partiality, a fear of treating one another based on what we have or how we appear rather than how you and what you have done in us. Father, help us to treat one another with honor and respect in light of the mercies that we all have been given in you. Father, we pray that we would be a people that, that treat one another with mutual respect and, and, and honor, and especially that we would not look down on the poor, on those who might have less influence. Help us rather to esteem them and to give them the, the honor that you have shown them. Father, we pray that we would be a people that represent you well, that we would boast in your mercies, in your grace, in your glory, And that in you, you have made us all rich in Christ. Father, we look forward to the time when your kingdom will be fully consummated and you will grant your children the eternal inheritance that you have promised long ago. Father, give us a joy of that a day. Let us wait for that day and purify our hearts, purify our minds. And may we live our lives here in this earth with a value system, not of this earth, but with a value system of your coming kingdom. May you be honored through us and glorified in the name of Jesus. Amen.